is John Ross. I asked my dad if I could be a part of the show, and all he did was give me this to read. Welcome to the Always Believe in You show with your host, Damon K. Ross. Please enjoy the show. Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. You are listening to the Always Believe in You show right here on 21.6 The Net your daily dose of encouragement. Now, today's show is going to be a little bit different than normal. Rather than me sit here and give you a longer monologue and talk about the topic by reading articles, I'm actually going to have my guest talk about the topic for today, which is mental health. But before we get into that interview, I'm going to bring you my Youth of the Week. My Youth of the Week is a young man by the name of Joshua Marin, who is known as the teen cobbler. He is a 20-year-old young man who runs a shop called Fix Your Kicks in which he repairs old sneakers. Now, I know some of you are thinking like, wait a minute, how can this 20-year-old be called the teen cobbler? Well, obviously, he was a teenager when he started his business. But uh, if you can go to uh, hypebeast.com, there's an article from 2018 that talks about Joshua Marin. Chicago's own Joshua Marin is an up-and-coming craftsman who, like his father and grandfather before him, carved out a niche in the noble trade of shoe repair. Known in his community as the teen cobbler, Marin's expertise in sneaker touch-ups, Air Jordans in particular, although inheriting the skill from his paternal predecessors, the artist succeeded in modernizing his mastery, incorporating sneaker culture into his work, and now with three fixture kicks outposts to his name, the Chi-Town native is as much an esteemed entrepreneur as he is a shoe technician. Now, I remember when I was looking at YouTube one day and I saw this video of this young man who was able to fix up these shoes, I thought that was the most amazing thing, but just his ability to fix the shoes and his you know his his handiwork it was the fact that he was able to turn something that he loved into a business opportunity and so this inspired me to show this to or show the video on YouTube to one of the students at the school where I work because this kid is a very bright individual with a lot of talents and it it was just a great way to show how someone even at a young age, can turn something that is somewhat of a hobby or a desire into a business opportunity. And, you know, I just thought that that was uh, just a wonderful thing because a lot of times as young people, they will view something and think, well, there's no way I can do this because of my circumstances, because of where I grew up, because I'm too young. And, you know, that's the purpose of the Youth of the Week in the show is, you know, hopefully you caring adults will play these segments for the young person in your life that you're working with and help them to understand that they can accomplish things even at a young age, even as a young man or a young woman, you have the ability to create a business opportunity or do something great to impact your community. Um, and there's also another wonderful article on DNA info.com and in which you know they just talk about the journey in which this young man takes in order to open his third store and one of the fascinating things that I saw within that is that his second store he actually helped open with his father and it's like the shop that his dad runs and so you know here you got an entrepreneur who 
is doing something to help his dad. So, you know, even as a young person, you can have some influence over those older than you, those who are, you know, parent figures or just mentors or others. You know, you're never too young to teach. You know, and we always tell older people, you're never too old to learn. Well, you know, young people, you're never too young to teach. You're never too young to influence other people. So, you know, I just found, yeah, I just found this to be a uh, great story in which, you know, we show a young man who has a talent, has a gift, who's found something that he can do uh, to create a business opportunity. You know, it's just a wonderful thing. And the other thing that I really liked in this uh, DNA Info article is he talked about how the greatest blessing is that he can be a blessing to other people. Because one of the things in the YouTube video that I saw is he would go to a thrift store and buy some beat up shoes and then he would take them and fix them up. And I mean, it was just amazing how he could make these shoes look brand new. But imagine being that being in a community where kids who, you know, oftentimes are judged and, and we shouldn't get into that, but are oftentimes judged based on their appearance and the things that they have. Well, imagine being in a neighborhood where you can go to the thrift store, buy a beat up old pair of, of shoes, whether they be Nike, Adidas, Reebok, whatever. And then you can go to the teen cobbler's fix your kick store. He fixed them up to look brand new and you hardly spend any money to have this trans transformation happen with your shoes. So it's just an amazing thing. But what he can do for the community and for the the kids out there who just want to fit in and, and want to feel, you know, a, a little bit of, of confidence in their attire, he can help do that. And it just kind of goes in line with what the great Zig Ziglar says, is you can have almost anything you want in life if you just help enough other people get what they want. And that's the mentality of this young man. And I just think it's great, just the whole thing on how he took a, a skill, developed a talent, and transformed it into something, you know, even greater. And, you know, at this point now, he does more than just fix shoes. You know, he can repair anything from high-end uh, designer purses to luggage, jackets, shoes, and more, fixing broken zippers, rivets, torn leather, broken heels, and provides cleaning and creates shoe designs as well. And he also has some of the miscellaneous things you need you know, to take care of your kicks like shoelaces, paints, and things of that nature in the store. So uh, big kudos to Joshua Marin for what he's done. And, you know, I just look forward to continuing to bring these stories of these amazing youth to the show. And with that, I'm going to transition into the interview portion of the show with my good friend and my boss at the school, the principal and a licensed therapist, Dr. Doug Bolton is my guest. So let's get to that interview. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Always Believe in You show on 21.6 The Net. I am sitting at North Shore Academy in the principal's office, but don't worry, I'm not in trouble, I promise. <laughs> I'm sitting here with my good friend, Dr. Doug Bolton, who is the principal at North Shore Academy. And he is also a licensed therapist as well. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about mental health and how it affects both uh, youth and young adults. And then later on in the show, we'll talk about how he became a therapist and, you know, his life's journey onto that 
um, onto this path. So, Doug, how are you today? It's a pleasure to be here, D. I, uh, I admire what you're doing and how many people's lives you're touching through this and through everything else you're doing. I appreciate that. So, um, as I said, I want to talk a little bit about mental health today uh, because there's a lot of people out there who are dealing with youth in different areas, uh, particularly in schools, who don't really understand mental health and mm-hmm. what what the strain is for a lot of kids who are dealing with mental health issues. And, you know, they're looked at as just bad kids or mm-hmm. kids that don't care, but they mm-hmm. really do have something going on. So what are some of your thoughts around how schools in general deal with mental health issues? Yeah, I've been um, doing a lot of reading, a lot of talking about this exact topic. Um, and as I've dug into the research and as I've um, thought about our experience here at North Shore Academy, um, I'd say that when I think about mental health in schools, I think about three vulnerability factors, three things that make kids vulnerable to mental health issues. Um, and uh, and really one intervention that, that covers all three of them. Um, and so there's something I think I think we can sometimes make mental health issues in schools more complex than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first piece is um, attachment, um, kids' ability to attach and connect to other people. Okay. Um, and so one of the things that they've found is that um, in their research um, from the 1960s and even before then is that um, we can take a look at um, – children's attachment to their parents at age um, two, three, and four. And it's more predictive of things like high school dropout okay. um, than achievement or IQ or anything else. Um, it's more consistent. It's a predictor for um, conduct problems. It's a predictor for anxiety. It's a predictor for school problems. And then also it's a real predictor for lifetime physical and mental health issues, substance abuse, depression, other things in adulthood. So the first piece is how can we help kids learn how to attach? So that's number one. uh, Before you go on, when you talk about a child's attachment to parents, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so it's interesting. They did did this study where they they had um, a room and a parent and a toddler in a room, a mother and a toddler in the room. And then they brought a... Um, um, an adult, another adult in to sit in the room mm-hmm. and then the parent left and then they watched to see what did this toddler do when their parent left. Okay. And then the parent comes back and then what did the toddler do? Was the toddler inconsolable? It makes sense that the toddler would be upset when their parent left, but right. do they were they able to be soothed by the stranger or soothed? Were they able to soothe themselves? When the parent came back, did they get too clingy? Did they ignore the parent? And so about 70% of the kids had um, a pretty normal attachment where they'd be upset when the parent left. And when the parent came back, they would, uh, um, they'd reunite and then get back to playing is kind of the more typical secure attachment. Got it. 30% of the kids would fall apart um, and either become so anxious and clingy and distraught that they couldn't tolerate any kind of soothing, either, even when mom came back. Or they just didn't even notice, seem to notice that mom left and didn't pay any attention to mom when she came back. Okay. So this is from the 1960s. Now, the key piece is there's a lot of things that can impact a child's attachment. Um, 
to their parent um, at an early age. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, but what we do know, and and some things could be about their own temperament, their ability to attach. Um, Kids with um, on the autism spectrum struggle right. more to attach, um, understandably. Um, but there are a lot of kids who who just temperamentally are more difficult to attach to. There's times when there's postpartum depression that impacts a parent's ability to attach. Sometimes there's an illness, or there can be a divorce, um, a, the loss of a grand, the infant's loss of a grandparent could impact. Um, a parent's availability in that really important time of attachment. Okay, so the attachment piece is not necessarily indicative of the child, but everything involved with the child, like what the parents were going through and everything. Like exactly, uh, okay. exactly. Um, um, whether the the world feels like a predictable place, um, whether there's a lot of conflict in the home, um, all of these things can impact a child's ability to say relationships are safe. Um, um, and so the great news is that even if you do have insecure attachment as a kid, it can be reversed later in life. It's, you know, your attachment is not a life sentence. So you can, through good relationships, through healthy adult relationships, um, you can begin to reverse the impact of attachment issues in kids. Okay. And so that's the beauty of being in a school is because we've got 60 people for kids who struggle with attachment to come in right connect and, with and them. connect with and attach yeah. with them and and that that is powerful and can have a lifelong impact even though they may only be here for a year but those attachments right. they make can be life-changing so second one is regulation the ability to self-regulate um, okay. so when I get upset, um, am I able to manage it in a way that is not um, um, that isn't destructive to others or to myself? Um, right. And we all have moments when we struggle and we melt down. Some people shut down by um, you know becoming quiet and refusing to talk. Other people can um, become aggressive and defiant. Um, we all out, right. Yeah, we all we all handle that in a different way. Um, the challenge for kids in schools when this that most of us are able to do this at home. There are plenty of kids who struggle with self-regulation, but they keep it together at school and they go home and they kind of um, express it all to their parents right. uh, or to their siblings. Um, the The challenge for kids at North Shore Academy is that those things happen in school and are much more public. And so it gets them into more trouble. Right. Um, and uh, it's harder to manage when it's in a public place. So, um, so, the the things that um, that happen to all of us when we struggle and we have a meltdown um, is we lose things like the ability, the parts of the brain um, that impact empathy, the parts of the brain that impact our ability to inhibit, which means like not say or do the thing you know right. you shouldn't say or do, right. but you end right. up doing it anyways, right? So like that that part of the brain, the part of the brain that inc- controls language and listening and creativity and flexibility, um, because we somehow are experiencing a threat, those things turn into our desire for action and control. And, and so um, we end up losing those things that are most helpful for us when we've got a problem to solve. Right. And when you uh, talk about regulation, uh, you're talking, you're speaking in terms of a child or young person not being able to self-regulate, but 
an adult's inability to self-regulate is another one of those factors that would impact the the um, attachment exactly. piece. Well, well, it's such an interesting point. You're exactly right that um, when we struggle to be self-regulated, right, we um, hurt our attachments. Right. And when we struggle to attach, it can be dysregulating. Right. So, so these things go together. Um, and, uh, and the other piece is that oftentimes when kids, um, um, melt down, whether it be my own kids or kids here, um, their dysregulation leads me to become more dysregulated. I want to take control of a situation in ways right. that probably are not that helpful. Right. I lose the ability to have empathy for what's going on for that, with that kid. I lose flexibility. All those parts of my brain start to shut down too. Right. And then all of a sudden you got an adult and a kid who are locked in to something that's really not that healthy. And so one of the things that we do really well, and you're about as good as anybody at helping people regulate, is um, is a lot of times it's like you you can come up to me and say, Doug, I got this. Right. You know, like <laughs> right. like it's time. This is, uh, you're not helping right now. Um, you're in lower brain too. So why don't I take this? I'm in a good place. I can help them calm down. And again, the thing that we need most when we are dysregulated, relationships are really regulating. Mm -hmm. Close, meaningful relationships are regulating. So the same intervention for that you'd want to use for somebody who struggles with attachment also helps with regulation. Right. So so then the last one is uh, understanding the effect of trauma. And so kids who have experienced trauma, um, one of the the two characteristics of kids who experience trauma are struggles with attachment and struggles with self-regulation. Because what generally ends up happening is that that they have experienced trauma at the hands of somebody they're supposed to be able to trust. Right. Um, And um, because they've experienced trauma, their whole stress response system goes a little bit haywire. And so they are... um, constantly worried that they can't trust the people who are there that they're supposed to be able to trust. Right. And we deal and, with that a lot here. Yeah. And yeah. and internally, you spend a lot of time feeling worried that something bad's going to happen because something really bad has already happened. Yeah. I was uh, speaking with someone on a topic similar to this, and they were saying that a lot of the effects are, are determined by how the caring adult handles the situation yep. after the trauma. So sometimes, so I'm speaking more in terms of it, if it's not the caring adult that caused the trauma, right. if there is a trauma, how did that adult handle the situation after that? And if it wasn't handled appropriately, if the right amount of care and uh, uh, communication wasn't done, then that could cause that long-term effect where I don't know if I can trust these people around me. Exactly. Yeah, they, um, it's a really good point. Um, what they've found is that the impact of trauma is based less on how intense and um, and severe the trauma itself is, and more what the yeah, response of the not just the it, it can be one person. Yeah. But really, it's the community. Um, how does my whole community respond? Do people support me? Or do people say I'm lying? Do people um, yeah. withdraw support? Do I feel? Do I end up feeling shamed by it? Um, that that exacerbates the impact of trauma in ways that have um, really very, very frightening long-term health and mental health outcomes to the point where people who have experienced trauma um, have a lifespan um, that um, 
um, that's similar to um, the impact of smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. They wow. live 20 years less um, because their whole system, their all of their alarm systems in their body continue to go off. It's like driving your car in red. Um, you know, the tack is in the yeah. red, you're redlining it the whole time and it, it, it burns through all of our immune system. It makes us more vulnerable to mental health problems, more vulnerable to suicide, drug abuse, cardiovascular disease, all of these things. Right. And the beauty is, and this is why I love working in a school, is that um, for all of these things, there's the same intervention, which is can we... Um, can we take these very vulnerable kids with mental health issues and can we put them into, can we wrap them within a community that right. is caring and connected so that they can withstand the impact of a trauma because mm -hmm. they know that people are going to be caring for them, that people can help them become regulated when they're dysregulated right. instead of, um, punish and isolate, which typically makes it worse. When they struggle with their social skills and they push people away, are there people who will stay involved and connected in spite of their poor social skills? And so can we can we create communities like that in schools? And that's why I love working in a school as a clinical psychologist. Schools are the place where it's right. at if you really want to create change because you've got kids for 30 hours a week. Yes. And you've got you've got a building full of adults. And so for the last um, two years, it, you know, this doesn't just apply to therapeutic schools like North Shore Academy. This is really just as important for all of our local high schools. And uh, um, and so it's a it's a very, very um, um, I think schools have a very special place in enhancing the mental health of our vulnerable kids. That's good. You said that. I was going to uh, ask you, uh, can you share with the listening audience kind of what the philosophy of North Shore Academy is? And even though this is a therapeutic school, how that same philosophy can be applied to general ed? Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. The uh, um, So there are a couple, a couple of thoughts that come to mind when you mention that. Um, so first and foremost, NSA is a community. It's a, it's a school community. Right. Um, but we are effective only in so much as we are a really healthy community. And so the two stories that come to mind, one is a um, research and the other is a story. And the research behind this, there's uh, um, three psychologists from South Dakota who 1970s um, were studying childhood resilience. And what they found um, as they were studying, why is it that some kids are able to be really successful in spite of growing up in really hard circumstances? Mm -hmm. And other kids seem to be born with a silver spoon in their mouth but can't Kid. seem to tolerate like the, the smallest of stresses. And, uh, and what they found is that kids who, who are more resilient have a community that has that meets four basic human needs. And they really talked about this as needs. They, they aren't talking about these as values. These are needs that we all have. The interesting thing about their theory is it started out as a theory, and then they started implementing it, and it worked in practice. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, as people were beginning to study the brain, it started working like people were able to see, oh, these things actually have... Um, biological bases for them. Okay. So 
the first human need is the need for belonging. So we all need to feel cared for, connected, valued, loved within our community. So one of the things that we know um, when we're doing a nice job here at North Shore Academy is when kids say, this feels like my family. My classroom feels like my family or my my middle school feels like a family. Um, the second is uh, is mastery. And that is being able to to engage, stay engaged in something and get better at something that's meaningful to us. Right. So it's it's a skill um, that that drives us, even if there's no monetary reward for it. Um, it's that unique genius that we all have. And so how can we make sure that we are um, indulging and engaging kids in those places where they they have this unique interest and skill? Um, but also, how can we make you know, algebra seem relevant to them too, right? right. That it, that it, it, so because we want to get better at things that are meaningful to us. So how can we take the mundane feel more meaningful, but also what are their natural talents that we want to, that we want to embrace? It takes a lot of talent to make a kid realize how algebra is important. That's, to them. that's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> I'm still right. I'm trying to figure yes. that one out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, the third is independence. And that's really about being able to um, set a goal and achieve it, having those skills, having the opportunity. Mm-hmm. One of the things that often happens for kids who we believe are either going to cause too much trouble or are too dependent, that we don't want to give them independence challenges. Um, so um, so we don't foster the fact that, you know, that yeah. we understand they're going to screw up, but independence is a skill. Being able to, to do things um, on your own is a skill, and they may screw it up. And oftentimes we don't give them the opportunity because we're afraid they're going to screw it up or we're afraid that they're going to fall apart. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, so providing them with opportunities to struggle and, and fail and then help them learn how to persist is an important part of a, uh, um, of a, what's called a circle of courage community. We're talking about the circle of courage is the name of the, the philosophy. And then the last one is generosity. And that's the thing that I think is really poorly understood about the kids at North Shore Academy mm-hmm. or other therapeutic schools is the fact that they have got gifts to give, unique and wonderful gifts to give. They are some of the most giving, generous oh, yeah. kids you're ever gonna, that you're ever going to meet, and yet we don't give them the opportunity to share those gifts with other people. Um, and, so, and so a big part of generosity is finding that you've got a, a, there's a bigger purpose to your life because um, you recognize that you've got something to give to the world. Yeah. So, so what I would say is um, that those, that's a, when I think about schools, if, when we think about the philosophy of North Shore Academy, that would be it. If we can create a school community that embraces and feeds kids, those who have those needs, um, within those four needs, we are, um, there's no way they can help but get better. Absolutely. And more resilient. And I think also uh, just having that as a philosophy is also good for the staff members as well. Well, and and I, th- I think about it with my family. There's not a single, I think about it if I was work, if I was a Absolutely. CEO of a business. Um, these are the things that everybody believes. Absolutely. That, that every, and research shows that this is what we all need. Um, 
in our lives. And so it's not just for kids. It's how we all it's, are resilient. If I'm at work and I am, uh, I'm getting micromanaged because my boss doesn't want me to, um, doesn't trust that I'm going to be able to do something. My independence needs aren't getting met. Um, and I'm not going to be happy. Yeah. Um, if I'm not learning, if I'm doing the same thing day in, day out, my mastery needs aren't going to get met. If I am um, doing some other job, if I'm a lawyer somewhere and I'm not learning something, I'm not engaged in it, um, it's going to have an impact on my mental health and my overall resilience. Absolutely. And it, I, <laughs> if people listen, it might get mad. But I think we have a little bit of a issue here with with that as well, because we I think sometimes we have people that are not stretching themselves to the point of having that independence, you know, particularly our TAs, you know, and I think as a community, we can do a better job of encouraging them in the same way that we're encouraging the students to give them more of that feeling of, I can manage these situations. When things get a little bit tough, I don't have to turn to someone else to take care of it. Now, there are obviously some times where it does get to be a lot and you do need to add that help. But now that's why I was saying the philosophy is not only good for the yeah. student community, yep. but it's, it's good for the overall community. Yep, I, I agree. So that's the that would be the independence piece. The mastery piece would be making sure that people are learning so that if something happens, that there's somebody kind of pulling us aside saying this is why this is going on. Right. And, and this is what you can do. Like the, when you can handle the situation better the next time than you did the first time, Absolutely. it feels great. Absolutely. And it's important for uh, for us to let people know when they're doing well. You know, uh, we have oftentimes where, you know, I've worked with students and a lot of their complaint is, well, nobody ever tells me when I'm doing good. I've been doing better and nobody tells yep. me. Only thing they tell me about is when I mess up and when I do wrong and then everybody jumps down my throat. Yep. And, you know, it, it's, it means a lot for students when they can hear that that mastery piece is being acquired because it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's something I, that takes time. So when, when I was uh, 21 years old working at a residential program, it was my first 10 days of ever working with these kids. I was walking down the, the driveway and the head of the program was walking the other way. And he said, I just want to let you know you're doing a phenomenal job. And that's, I, and, and so that's, you know, 35 years later, here I am um, remembering that, Exactly where that happened. And so so there is something very important about about making sure that we are all part of this community that embraces the circle of courage. Absolutely. That we are all benefiting from a circle of courage community. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Always Believe in You show on 21.6 net. The station is growing. It is your daily dose of encouragement. We have a lot of amazing shows out there, a lot of amazing people with shows. Kicking off our week is Two Ball Guys in a Microphone with Coach Papa, uh, Deke Jones, Rancher Ron. That's Monday from 6 to 9 a.m. Following Two Ball Guys in a Microphone, we have Pete Talks Jobs with Peter Galt. That airs from 9 to 10 a.m. on Mondays. And then Monday evening, we have Let's Go Racing with Mike Babbitts from 5 to 6 p.m. And then Kicking or ending off Monday is Slanging Hope Radio with Shay and Jessica Sassano bringing you Recovery Nation. And that is a show to support anyone who is feeling hopeless. And that airs from 6 to 8 p.m. on Mondays. Tuesday, the day starts off with Not Done Yet, Tom Sellers and Robbie Robinson, a cancer support show. That airs from 12 to 1 p.m. on Tuesdays. And then the evening on Tuesday, we have The Deep Dive with Nick Espinoza. 
And that is a show, All Things Cybersecurity, that airs Tuesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. And then Wednesday, we have our sports show, which is On the Bump with Young and Marshall. That airs from 7 to 9 p.m. And Thursday morning, the day is kicked off with Tim Stewart, Coach Papa, with Freedom One. And that goes from 6 to 7.30 a.m. Following that, we have Beautifully Broken with Dawn Stewart. It's a support show for broken women, which airs 10.30 to 11.30 a.m. Then on Thursday evenings from 4 to 5, you have the Always Believe in You show with your host, Damon K. Ross. And following that is Slang and Hope Radio with A View from the Other Side, again with Shay and Jessica Sassano. And that is a show for addicts on the other side, so those that are closely related to those that uh, have addiction. And that's Thursday evenings from 7 to 8.30 p.m. All times are Central Standard Times. All right, now, Doug, you said that there were uh, two stories, and we missed the Yeah, I the missed second the second story. one. Yeah, there's the um, philosophy of the circle of courage. Um, and the story is one that's been meaningful to me since I read it. It's about um, Bruce Perry, who is a um, psychologist. Um, he does a lot of research. I think he's a, um, an MD and a PhD, smart guy. Um, and, but he does some of the most profound work on trauma there is in the country. And so he's... Um, whenever there's a big traumatic event, he was at Columbine, he was at Sandy Hook. He was also at the Branch Davidian compound where, um, you know, years ago, I think it was early 90s, um, there was a uh, standoff between ATF agents and um, the Branch Davidians mm-hmm. led by David Koresh. Um, the uh, Branch Davidians had compiled weapons. Um, they were in a standoff and then the ATF went in and... People died. Terrible things happened. Um, um, And um, there were children there who were suspected of having been sexually abused um, throughout their lives, but they also had been removed from their parents. They'd experienced this horrible event. Um, And the Texas Rangers, not the baseball team, but the police (laughs) were there to um, protect them. And and so um, Bruce Perry was also brought in to um, help them deal with the trauma. And so as he tells the story, he shows up and the head of the Texas Rangers says, um, we don't we don't need you here. We got them calm. We got them protected. And they don't need any shrinks getting into their heads right now. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and what Bruce Perry said was knowing the impact of trauma on our physical bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, he pointed to a girl and he said, if that girl over there has a heart rate, sleeping heart rate, she was sleeping. He said, if she has a sleeping heart rate above, of above 100, um, we'll come in. If it's below 100, we'll leave. And I agree with you. They, won't, they don't need us. So they went and they took her um, heart rate, 160. Holy cow. Her sleeping heart rate was um, the exercise max heart rate of a lot of people. That's how that's how her body was trying to process this right. trauma. So they came in. And what he said was, um, we didn't give them therapy. He's like, well, I believe in therapy, but this is not a therapy time. He said, but what we did want was to give everybody three hours of therapeutic contact a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and for him, what that meant was if they needed a laugh, they'd go to the funniest staff member. If they needed a hug, they'd go to the person who was the best hugger. If they needed someone just to sit and listen and walk with them, they went to the best listener. And his goal was to make sure that they provided um, both the connection. So again, we're back at 
um, attachment mm-hmm. that they can have this web of therapeutic contacts where they can attach and be regulated. Right. And their heart rate started to go down. Um, and then they were able to um, eventually end up getting the help that they needed. But that was instructive to me that when we think about what does this, what what does a school community need to offer? And I believe the metaphor that he has, I really like it, of this web of therapeutic contacts. That when you walk into school, you know you're going to get a big smile from this person. You know you're going to get challenged by this teacher in a way that feels okay. Right. You know you're going to um, going to have a joke with this person. You know if you're hurting, you can go talk to this person. And if we can have that web of therapeutic contacts for our kids in every school, we're going to be a much healthier community. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and that, that is so important, uh, what you talk about there. And it's important for communities to understand and recognize who those people are yep. within their organization and allow the students to access that. So I think that's uh, really important and a great story uh, that you just told there. And, and what it means is you don't need to be a psychologist to make a difference. Absolutely. You can be, it's anybody. Um, our custodians do as good a job of connecting to kids as I do as a clinical psychologist. It, oh, and, yeah. and, and a lot of those connections they make with Luciano is going to be more impactful than what I will do as a principal. We all have, we all have an opportunity and the oh, shame yeah. is if we don't take that opportunity to connect with kids, um, that's when everybody suffers. Absolutely. Now, uh, Doug, I would like to get a little bit into your background, your story, mm-hmm. how you got to where you are. But I wanted to uh, get your viewpoints on an article that I read, and I'm just going to uh, read the little bit of it that yeah. I have here. And it's the threat of child suicide is the highest during the school year studies find. Mm. So it says more school-aged children are either considering or attempting suicide, according to a study published in the medical journal Pediatrics. And the findings suggest that youth may face increased stress and mental health challenges when classes are in session. The study, Hospitalization for Suicide Ideation or Attempt, looked at trends in emergency rooms and inpatient encounters for suicide-related diagnosis in children ages 5 to 17 at 31 children's hospitals from 2008 to 2015. And uh, it goes on to talk about the analysis and everything. But uh, what are your thoughts? Like, have you seen anything yeah, in well, study with this? Or? Um, well, it doesn't surprise me. I've not seen that, that study. Um, two things come to mind. The first is Brene Brown, um, who has a great TED, couple great TED Talks. Um, and she does research on shame. She's a social worker. And um, what she found in her interviews, getting people's shame histories, um, um, is that 85% of people were shamed in school in a way that forever changed how they felt about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so school can be a place um, for a lot of people where it is there's a combination of wonderful social engagement, but it's also a place where great shame can happen. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that the other piece that I would would say is that, um, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we survived because we're a social being. We didn't survive because we were able to 
make a spear because right. one guy with a spear is not going to stop right. a saber-toothed tiger, right? right. It, it, it's not going to happen. You got to have the guy with a spear. You got to have the the people who are stoking the fire and getting the wood. You got to have the people who are caring for the babies. You got to have the people who are cooking. You've got to have the people who are out hunting. Right. And so we were we were born to survive in these groups of somewhere between forty and one hundred and fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so. Um, schools are very complex social places, and when we feel threatened by some level of alienation, it hurts us at a very core and primitive level and an evolutionary yeah. level. And so the fact that these things are happening more in school doesn't surprise me, because that's a place where they're going to experience the greatest level of social mm-hmm. threat, which is going to be most impacting for them. Um, I, I guess the piece that I am surprised about is in the summertime, I would think that they would, there'd be less supervision, um, and that, and, and more disconnection. But my guess is that walking into school every day, when, if you're in a middle school of three or 400 or a high school of 1500 to 3000, um, that's the way it is around here in the Chicago area. Um, the, there's constant social threat that can, um, can throw you off and threaten your sense of yourself in a way like nothing else can. Yeah. And social media means that that threat can be extended very quickly across um, hundreds, thousands of kids in a moment's notice. And that was never the case before. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, what what role, which, I mean, we obviously know, but like what role adds to that pressure that a lot of youth are feeling and does that play a greater role with students with mental illnesses, or do you think it's just something that's general across the board that affects our young people today? Um, so I think that there is a greater myth about what makes us happy. There's a there's mm-hmm. kind of a grand conspiracy um, that um, in order to be happy, you've got to have a job that makes a lot of money in order right. to have a job that makes a lot of money and is very powerful. You've got to go to a, the highest echelons college. And in order to do that, you got to take AP classes and excel at sports mm-hmm. and, um, have all of these awards. And in order to do that in middle school, you've got to get past your placement test, get into the big, and it goes right down to people competing for places in, um, preschools and elementary schools. And, uh, and so, so we're wrapped up in this idea, but there's a, at the very top of that myth, it comes crumbling down that what research says is that, um, after people make about $75,000 a year, it does not matter how much more they make. Once, once they can deal, make sure that their, their money, there's not a ton of stress. Um, they could make, 70,000, 700,000, 7 million, their level of happiness is going to be the same. So once you can get your basic needs met, that's that's number one. The other piece is in terms of colleges, I, there was an interesting t- statistic that I read the other day. <laughs> and that is that um, guess how many CEOs in Fortune 500 companies um, in the top 100 um, companies Went to Ivy League schools. Any idea? That's about three percent. Yeah, it was seven percent. Seven. Eight of them, eight percent, didn't go to college at all. 
So there were more there were more people who never went to college than were Ivy League people running our best most successful corporations today. And I'm not saying that corporate success is the is the measure either, but right. it is to say that that's just to say that there's this myth that you've got to get to this college, you've got to get this money, you've got to get this job. Mm-hmm. And and so all of a sudden all of our work as parents is trying to give get our kids who really should have an opportunity to be kids to be engaging in things that are high stress, high stakes, um, high rates of failure. You've got to be in the top 6% to get into Harvard. Right. Um, and so that means that there's going to be 94% of people who apply. This is These are the people who apply. These aren't the people who, 6% of people who even know they can apply to Harvard. You're going to get right. 96%, 94% <laughs> of people who are going to feel like failures. Yeah, it's it's not an easy it, it is a really hard, um, high stress situation for right. our kids to be in. Yeah, that's a pretty high number. Yeah. Of, uh, when you look at the failure and those that don't get in, I think our uh, culture could do a lot better at promoting just going to college and not focusing so much on those big tools like what you were saying. Yeah. I heard a. Uh, uh, this guy, I can't remember his name, but he was talking about that very thing. And he was saying that a lot of people end up becoming failures because they're trying to push so hard to get into these big schools. And he was primarily uh, talking about uh, people from lower income areas who don't necessarily get the best of education through their high schools. And then they go off to these colleges because they're getting you know, these special uh, scholarships mm-hmm. and things of that nature because of the finances. And then they find that they can't keep up and then they end up failing out or whatever. And now they're feeling like a failure. And his point was, why not just go to a college just because you can't learn at that fast rate doesn't mean you're not going to get the material. Yeah. So if you need to take a little bit longer to get the information, once you're out there in the world, it's not going to matter if you have the information and you know how to do it you'll be able to find your way and hit your niche and and go on to do some great things. So instead of, you know, focusing on that, you know, let's focus on getting into a school that you can get in, that you can excel in. So yep. you know, go to a school where you can be the top instead of where you're at the, you know, you're either at the bottom or you're, you can't even get the bottom. You're below the bottom. Yep. You know, well, somewhere. Well, it's, so it's interesting. There's a Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell wrote a book called David and Goliath. And one of the things that he says is that if you wanted to go into chemistry at Harvard, um, if you're not one of the top third, you're going to end up yeah. dropping out of chemistry and you'll become philosophy major. Nothing wrong with philosophy major, but if you want right. to be a chemist and you end right. up in philosophy or um, an English major or whatever, that's not your right. passion. Whereas if you go to a, a state school, University of Northern mm-hmm. Illinois, um, you end up being one of the top people, being able to be mentored by um, exactly. people in the department, having opportunities exactly. to present at papers and do research. All of a sudden, those guys meet at a conference um, 10 years later. Right. And uh, um, one guy's in the chemistry conference leading leading the way in the country in chemistry, and the other person is, um, is trying to find a way to make a living as an English teacher somewhere. Yeah. Um, so, and... Um, and again, nothing wrong with English, of course. The The issue is just, is it what you want to do? Is mm-hmm. this what your passion is? Um, 50% of college students go to are in community college. Wow, I didn't know uh, that. Um, and so so there's a lot of good 
teaching that's happening and learning that's happening right. in these community colleges. And then the other piece that I think about when you talk about um, there are there are real cultural differences um, mm-hmm. between um, an inner city high school right. and University of Michigan. And um, it is all a culture. The the kid that goes to Nutria High School is going to be acculturated to be successful in that community. Right. Um, and what they what they there's a there's a group called One Goal in Chicago, and the goal has always been in the past. Let's get kids into college. Um, and now their goal is we're going to keep giving them support all the way through college. So that, you know, if you sit in the front row, your grades are more likely. There's a mm-hmm. correlation data that says you're going to have 15% higher grade right. just by sitting in the front row. Right. Just by having office hours with your professor. There are these things that they begin to teach and say, these are the things you've got to do in order to be successful in this particular academic culture. is different than what it was like. Um, and um, at your high school in inner right. city Baltimore or Chicago or wherever. Right. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Yeah, and I'm enjoying it. Appreciate yeah. you. So now let's uh, go a little bit into uh, how you got to the position you're in now, because one of the things that I want to do is just make sure that you know people can share these interviews with some young mm-hmm. folks so they can see that. There are many different paths to certain professions, yep. and maybe some will see this and go, hey, I never thought about being a psychologist or yeah. a school principal, but I kind of like that white-haired yeah, guy. That's, that's <laughs> what, that was on the show. The, so. the white hair I, is all due to being a principal, I got to say. <laughs> Yeah, now see, folks, when I met Doug, he was a redhead. I was a redhead. 18 years ago. (laughs) I don't know if it was too many years later. Uh, It's around the time you became principal. It happened fast. (laughs) The transition happened fast. So, uh, so again, uh, going back to 18 years ago when I first met you, uh, we're sitting in a brand new building. Uh, The building next door, which you guys obviously can't see, was uh, the school. And Doug was a therapist at the time. So, can you tell us a little bit about where you came from, mm-hmm. so where you grew up, yep. and what were some of the events that happened in your life that sparked that interest in becoming a psychologist? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about that. I grew up born in Syracuse, New York. Um, um, I think uh, I was born, my dad was a uh, minister. My mom was a Preacher's wife, four <laughs> kids. I was the third of four kids. Preacher's we, kid. I didn't know yeah, that. <laughs> I was. I was a pre. I am a preacher's kid. Um, and uh, um, you know, we had a, a nice big house. It was a parsonage for the church, right on the campus of Syracuse University. It was a pretty good, okay, pretty good nice. gig. Um, then uh, um, my parents divorced um, when I was six. Okay. Um, at the time, that was a you know my dad left the church, didn't have any way to get income. My mom had never worked. Um, so she went to, to, uh, get her master's in social work. Okay. Um, and also she, uh, um, um, and, um, she was also working full time, um, at a nursing home. And so there wasn't a whole lot of supervision. My older brother, we were 10, 8, 6, and 4. And uh, um, it was a, a little crazy in our house, as you might imagine. I can imagine. Um, and, uh, and we didn't have a whole lot of money. Um, 
And, um, but my mom, um, made it work, um, raising the four of us, um, on her own for the most part, we'd see my dad on, on Sundays. Um, and, uh, and then we moved out to a a suburb. We kind of lived across the tracks in a, in a nice suburb called skinny Atlas, New York. Um, a good little town. Um, that's an interesting name. It is an interesting name. (laughs) It's one of the finger lakes. Um, and, uh, um, and so I think that, um, and I went to, I ended up graduating from there, going to Bates college. Um, okay. when where, where's Bates college up in, uh, in Maine. So okay. way up in the middle, of in the middle in of nowhere the- it was loved it up there, but it was, uh, it was the middle of nowhere. I started doing things like, you know, I think I, I always knew that I wanted to do something with people. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was going to be like, but there's these moments that you realize are, that feel providential or something. And yeah. so, uh, so I had my, uh, I was coming back from writing my thesis, my senior year, it was St. Patrick's day. It was like 11 o'clock. I'm coming out of the library. I go to this St. Patrick's day party and I see these, um, two of my classmates who had never seen them speak before. Um, I'd never seen them speak. I'd never seen them speak to each to other. Each other. Sorry. Okay. Yes, yes. I never, yes. They, 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 they were actually very good at speaking. Just I'd never seen them speak to each other. And uh, um, and I walked in. They said, you should do this. One of them was uh, um, a former girlfriend of mine. The other was somebody I was, I was friendly with. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they talked to me about this camp for kids with emotional behavioral problems. Mm-hmm. And next thing I knew, I was driving to Boston and interviewing for it. And... Um, that was the story I told that about, um, 10 days into it, um, the director of the program says, you're doing a phenomenal job. And I felt like this is it. Yeah. And, and I felt that before he said that, but there was some confirmation, confirmation. to that, yeah, right. but it was like, it was like, all right, this is, I can see myself doing this for the rest of my life. And so I became a teaching assistant for two years at, a um, at a school called uh, McKinley technical high school in Boston. Um, and, uh, it was actually a guide. They called it the guidance assistant position. I was like an assistant therapist. It was great. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. it, was, it was a great position. And then, uh, and I was working at this program called Wadiko in the summers. And then, um, I took a look at, I applied to both social work and psychology, um, programs. And I got into a clinical psychology program up at the university of Vermont. Um, loved it. Worked with, again, working with kids, um, in uh, therapeutic foster care programs mm-hmm. and, and other places. Um, came and did my internship at, the, at um, Children's Hospital. At the time it was called Children's, now it's Lurie's. Um, and did my internship there. And they had a therapeutic school at Children's at the time. Okay. And so I worked, um, I was kind of the, um, um, I was in charge of all the teaching assistants. They called them um uh, I think it was intervention specialists, um, ISs. And so I was in charge of all those guys and we had a great time and a great program, but I had the opportunity to, um, work within a public school and that seemed like the next best step. So I was a therapist out in, uh, um, out in Arlington Heights at a school at a therapeutic high school Okay, and then moved here and was a therapist in our, um, I did that for a couple of years, came here, um, and loved it and was a therapist here for seven years and had no thoughts about being 
principal, principal, and then the principal resigned, and all of a sudden I said, um, "All right, maybe I'll give this a shot," and I've I've loved it. Did somebody uh, encourage you to apply for that, or just when it opened up, you just thought, mm, "You know what, I I might want to do that." No, you know, I think I was uh, I went in to uh, um, to talk to the assistant superintendent to say. You know, this is the kind of qualities I think you should be looking for in in a principal. And she said, "Well, why don't you throw your hat in the ring?" Ah. And I thought, "Wow, that conversation shifted on me in a way I did not expect." Um, and uh, and then I had other people encouraging me after that. Um, okay. And so I was a, a little bit on the fence, and then I decided to apply. And uh, and here we are. Here we are. <laughs> Thirteen years later. What would you say? Uh, Let's step back into the therapist role. What would you say is the most rewarding part of being a therapist? It's a really good question. Um, I think that there's uh, the and and I think being a therapist in a school is particularly nice. I've had a private practice as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really enjoyed my private practice when I when I was doing that work. There's something about being able to create a community for a student for 30 hours a week. And when you can do family therapy mm-hmm. and know that you can um, uh, that you can take a child's life that's been really hard for them right. and to to work to make school and home. Um, a really different place for them so that they can thrive instead of, um, feel struggle and feel shame, mm-hmm. um, um, is really, really, it's a powerful thing. And then you watch them, them grow, um, yeah. and change and it takes time. You know, it's really like, it's like, you know, watching paint dry or grass grow or whatever. <laughs> right. Like you never, you're in the right. middle of it and you right, think right. That, that we're not getting anywhere. And then all of a sudden you look back and you say, wow, it's amazing what changes have, have yeah. happened in their lives. And, and I've been doing it long enough now where I've got kids I was working with 20 years ago coming back and you're seeing their lives. Yeah. And, and you can see, I, I was, I was an important part of that journey at an important time in their lives. And, and, and that's really, really meaningful. So it feels, uh, if I'm hearing you correct, it sounds like what you're saying is for you working with, a family or an individual to where you can have more of a impact on their lives on a day-to-day basis yep. was better and more rewarding for you than having a private practice where you see them once a week or once every other week or once a month. Yep. And you don't really get to be involved and really get to see some of the, the growth in the way that you can working with them day to day. Yeah, I'd say for the, I think there are a lot of kids who that can be really helpful for and meaningful for. Um, I've always been drawn to the kids where that's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. So in my private practice, I felt like I was able to have a really good, uh, a really good relationship with these kids in a way that, um, that, that was meaningful, but their challenges weren't nearly as significant as the ones who are here and the kids that I'm, that I <laughs> found myself drawn to over time. Right. And so I've, um, I'd say it, um, it's a different kind of population that you can touch with a private practice. Um, and, uh, um, I think the hardest kind of private practice is when you're doing one hour a week therapy or yeah. 40 minutes a week therapy, 45 with 
students who have more significant needs because it's it's just not enough. Yeah. Um, and so so I'd I'd say if I was to if you want to work with kids with less intense needs, private practice, um, community-based mental health work is great. Um, if you are drawn towards kids with greater needs, um, this is a great place to do that. Then good deal. Folks, you're listening to the Always Believe in You show on 21.6 The Net. You can catch me right here on Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. Uh, the rebroadcast will be Monday evenings from 4 to 5 p.m. These are Central Standard Times. And on uh, Tuesdays, I will be making the show available on Podbean. You can go to www.demondkross.podbean.com. And I will also have our videos on YouTube as well on the ABIY show channel. So keep uh, keep tuned and you'll get to hear more great content and see great people like uh, Dr. Doug Bolton. Uh, so Doug, I have a, um, another question for you in regards to you making the transition from being a therapist to being a principal. What was that like? Because, and the reason I ask you that question is I have a friend of mine down in Missouri who became a principal Mm -hmm. and he did that for two or three years. And then he realized, man, I'm in too many meetings. I want to be touching the, you know, the lives of the kids and more, impactful in a more regular basis than I can as a principal. So he actually left the position of principal and went back to being a teacher. Yeah. Did that ever cross your mind once you became principal and kind of had to take yeah, a step I would say back it crossed from my the mind a lot. Yeah. You know, I think that the, um, um, I've always thought that, um, at some level we're all contributing the same amount to this place. Mm-hmm. And whether you're a member of the Dean's team, a teacher, therapist, teaching assistant, administrator, it just happens to be a role and we're responsible to the community. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but there are times when I would really miss the intensive time mm-hmm. with kids. Um, I think that I've been able to, one of the things that I've felt really good about in my work is that I've been able to stay close. I can't be close to all the kids, right? but I'd say I still have a classroom full of kids, like probably 10 or 11 whose lives I've really been able to still be instrumental in who's, um, who I think I bring joy into their lives and they certainly bring joy into mine. I, I know all the kids and I know their struggles. And so at different points in time, it might be, um, different students, I do think that the focus really shifts to moving from, and you and you talked about this earlier. Um, how can we create a circle of courage community for kids? Now I see my role is how can I create a circle of courage community for the adults in the building, and knowing that they can't create that community for kids if they aren't experiencing it themselves. Right. And so I'm spending right. a lot of time um, helping support adults. Hopefully, I'm helping them build their skills, build their resilience so that they can be developing. So either right. way, it's about human development. Right. You know, and so it's, um, and uh, and one of the nice things about being a principal is that you get to hire people like you. Right. Um, <laughs> and you you get to surround your, yourself right. with um, people who are eager to grow and learn and partner with you to figure out the hardest challenges, whether it be the cha- challenges of a school or a particular student or family. Yeah. Um, we skipped over a question I wanted to ask you after I asked you about the best 
reward or the greatest rewards, mm-hmm. what would you say is the greatest challenge of being a therapist, both uh, with the mm-hmm. private practice and with yeah. being a school therapist? Um, you know, I think that the, it's interesting cause I don't, n- nothing jumps, right? Like <laughs> there's nothing that popped. So it's, a, I'm, I'm, uh, it's hard work. Um, what I would say, um, the least pleasant part, not the most difficult part is the paperwork. Yeah. Um, in private practice, the billing paperwork and the notes, um, here it would be the IEP paperwork. Um, um, those are things that seem to always get in the way of my, um, my ability to connect with kids. Yeah. Um, I would say that the, um, um, when you've got a classroom of kids that is struggling, that are struggling at the same time, it can be stressful. Mm-hmm. And if you see it as we've got to stop them from struggling, the work is harder. Yeah. And when I started to see it as, man, this is a time when there a lot of learning can happen for all of us. So yeah. let's dig in together. It, it felt more, it was still stressful, but felt more empowering. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, um, I'm not sure if I really answered your question all that well, but I, there aren't that many drawbacks to being a, um, a therapist at a therapeutic school. I think it's great work. Uh, what about the, um, what about seeing students leave? How, how do you deal with that or a patient? Like, I don't, I'm, how long did you do the private practice? Yeah, I did that for about five years. Okay. Um, so, it, in addition to this work, so it was a one night a week private practice. Okay. I saw maybe five so, clients a week. So what would you uh, what would you say that experience is like? Like kind of when that. the relationship had to because we we started off the show talking about how yeah. important relationships are, and yeah. I know you build relationships with your clients. Uh, you know, though it's a little bit different because you have the the client patient um, relationship. Yeah. But what is the what is that process like when well, you have the, the? It's really it's a good question because it's really important the, because there's loss inherent in that. Mm. Um, it was different when people left me. We were able to. The idea is how do we consolidate the gains that we have? How do we celebrate the work that we did? And they're making the choice to leave me. When I had to leave the private practice and tell people I was no longer going to work with them, that was harder. Yeah. Um, because it meant that I was initiating a loss for them. And so, um, then at those moments, the question is how can I make that loss? Cause everybody experienced losses mm-hmm. of Absolutely. relationship. And, uh, um, and so how can I make that as therapeutic a process as possible so that I can set the stage for healthier experience of losses, whether it's going off to college, whether it's a breakup with a girlfriend, whether it's the right, loss whatever, of a parent, right. the, you know, whatever it may be, but how can I, set the stage and create the foundation for Mm -hmm. them to be able to have healthy losses in the future. But that's hard because I've got my own loss issues, right? Like I, um, you know, my parents were divorced. I experienced a lot of loss when I was a kid. And so I like to avoid loss. And so it required me to engage in a healthy way when every part of me said, you know, just say goodbye and be gone, be done with it, yeah. right? Let's let's not make this a big deal and let's let's move on. And I needed to do that differently for them. I'm glad you said that because that was leading to my next question: is what do you, as the therapist, psychologist, do to guard yourself emotionally? Because you're dealing with a lot of very stressful emotional 
situations with your patients. Yeah. What do you do to guard yourself? Do you find someone that you talk to to help you stay regulated and, and figure out how to navigate some of the emotional things? Or do you just do, you know, study, just read? Yeah. Or is it a combination of, of all of that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I think that I've got, um, I've got people that I, that I talk to and I, I've got people I do my own supervision with each week, mm-hmm. um, um, to help me make sure I'm, I'm, I'm grounded because I think right. we, there can be a lot of self-deception in this work mm-hmm. too. Um, and so I want to be sure that I'm grounded. Um, I think that, um, there's uh, you know, there's a, a term psychologists and, and therapists use is called compassion fatigue where, um, you know, you can give so much that you feel depleted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't think I, that, I, that doesn't impact me as much. Um, um, so, um, not that I don't get tired, I get tired, but it's generally not because I feel like I've given too much. I feel like, uh, there are times when I, um, it's stressful because you wish that you could help kids change a little bit quicker. Um, but I think that I've always had the thought that my job is to do whatever I can to give them the best opportunity possible. Right. And there are going to be times when that's not enough. And, um, on Friday, I'm going to be attending a funeral of a student who was here eight years ago, Mm. um, who died of a drug overdose. And, all I can hope is that in these moments when there are tragic outcomes and there's great sadness about it, don't get me wrong, um, it would be harder, much harder for me if I felt like I didn't do everything I could eight years ago. Right. Um, and I do feel like there are um, um, there are things that I just I, I I'm at peace with the things I can't control. Yeah. As long as I can be at peace with the fact that the things I can control, I engaged in, in as good and healthy a way as I could. With everything that you have. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, and for as far as uh, being a principal, mm-hmm. two two things. Uh, first, what's the most difficult or challenging thing for being a principal? And then what's the most rewarding thing as, uh, for being a principal? Um, I think the hardest thing, um, that, that volume is a hard thing, the, the amount of work. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, you know, if I do my job well, I'm here at five 30 in the morning and doing two and a half hours of email in the morning. And then I'm hitting email after dinner at night just to be able to get caught up. I think that's, you know, you're doing work. Um, these are sensitive kids, yeah. sensitive families' lives, and yeah. they shouldn't have to wait three days to get an email response when there's something right. So I, I want to be responsive, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, um, but, but that doesn't let up, you know? Yeah. So, so I think that there's a little bit of that, that pace that's, that can, uh, so keeping up with the demand. Yeah. Keeping up with those demands. Um, I think that there are times when, um, the adults are experiencing stress and I, um, I want to support them in ways and it's not always easy to support them and, or know how to support them as effectively as I'd like to. So, um, 
so those are, I think those are some of the stresses. Um, you know, I, um, there's a lot of reward by proxy. Like, um, we had a success assembly. Yeah. Um, where we had students talking about their successes. We had students performing things that they had talents that they had worked entire lives on. And it was really inspiring. It was, it was, I, I actually got to be in there for a good part of it this year. Cause the past couple yeah. of years, students are struggling. Yeah. So I didn't get a chance yeah. to be in there for the success assembly, but that was great seeing that, you know, and, uh, there's one student in particular that got up there and spoke, uh, and I always t- I've told her because she just came to the school recently and mm-hmm. I've told her a number of times, like, I see you being a huge advocate and really being someone to push some of the change that you're looking yep. for to happen. And of course, she's, oh, yeah, but she got up there and I mean, she like really rocked it. She stood up there with four. She was like, I don't understand what the big deal is. I just read something. Yeah. And I was like, it wasn't the fact that you read something and that you know, you had something prepared. That's fine. I said, it was the confidence and the way you stood up there at that podium and you delivered with conviction. I said, that's what I'm talking about. And that's what I see. Yep. And that was just amazing. And, uh, you know, it was just great seeing that. So, so, so it's, it's nice to be a proxy for that, right? right. To, to see, okay, I'm a part of something right. where great things are happening. Um, then I got two more. I think that there's a special connection that you can have with kids. Mm-hmm in a school and it doesn't need to be principal. It could be anybody, but the idea that I can have meaningful relationships. So when I see kids, I really love seeing them. And I think they love seeing me like right. there's that. It's very lucky to be able to be in a place or parents who are appreciative and right. are excited to see them. They are excited to see me. We can tell a story. We're part of a journey together and to be part of a journey for so many kids who are so courageous and so generous and struggle yeah. so much. Um, I think it's very unique. And so I would say that that would be another piece that I love about the work. And then the last one is when kids come back. Yeah. And they, they come back um, and and we'll have a like a student a week come back, something like that. And they come back and they share the rest of their journey with us. Yeah. That and, that's, and that's a really special and important time yeah. for them. But um, it also helps ground our work to say, wow. Six years ago, I never would have imagined that um, right. this person would have graduated from college and is um, has a family and is really happy right now um, and uh, you know living a really good life and and so so when you can know that you're that you are an important part formative part of that journey that's yeah that means a lot to me. I can imagine I haven't been here long enough to see those stories, but yeah. to see some of the kids that have come in and now they're either they're bridging now or yep. they've already gone back to their home school. Yep. You know, seeing that is the same type of feeling and, you know, just not the long-term effect. So I'm looking forward to being able to see some of that myself. Yeah. yeah. So my last, uh, last two questions for you, if you had the opportunity to go back and speak to young Doug Bolton, mm-hmm. what advice would you give him? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, um, I would uh, I would say follow your heart because my heart got me here, and I wouldn't have done I wouldn't have done it any different. So yeah. that's, that's the first thing. Is just uh, I think I would say um, you've got a great career ahead of you. 
um, you've got, you're going to be really happy in your work. Um, and you're going to make a difference in people's lives. And, um, so just focus on that and, uh, um, and the opportunities will come and then you take them. All right. And then, uh, final question, because we are living in different times than when you and I grew up, what advice for any youth out there that's listening, what advice would you give them for right now, moving forward into the future? Yeah, I would say, um, so the first thing that comes to mind, and it's a good question. Um, first thing that comes to mind is, um, reach out to an adult that you think that that you admire, reach out to an adult that you really like and make a connection. Um, take risks to connect. Um, try things you wouldn't otherwise try. Um, but surround yourself with a network of people, adults and other students that are going to fulfill and sustain you in really healthy ways. That's that network, I think, um, that I hope can would make a difference. That's awesome. All right, so that uh, will conclude our time here on the Always Believe in You show. I want to give an extra special thanks to this special show to my friend, Dr. Doug Bolton. Appreciate you. Appreciate all you do around here at the school and all you've done for me individually uh, since before I started working here and just all the years I've known you. So just want to say I appreciate that. And all you listeners out there, uh, continue to you know listen to the show, share this with as many people as possible. Again, my goal is to help youth and young adults and those that work with and care for them to enrich their lives in any way possible and just to provide a resource for information that you can use to make your lives and those you work with better. And as I always say, keep striving, stay humble, and always believe in you. Till next time. <music>